0: Welcome to Broad and Walnut. I'm your host, Michael Gorman. On the pod today, we have Keith Morgan, former CEO of AMCO and current medical marijuana applicant in the state of Pennsylvania. Keith is really one of the smartest people I know and a consummate entrepreneur, somebody I definitely wanted to have on the pod as soon as possible. Uh, during the first half of the interview, we talk all about medical marijuana and the application process in the state of Pennsylvania, and during the second half, we talk all about Amco Transmissions and how that company came to be, and also how it opened 500 stores, I think, in about four and a half years at the beginning of its run, um, how it became a household name, jingles, advertising, if you remember, uh, A, Beep Beep, MCO, I'm sure we've all. You've all heard of that. Uh, we talked about that during the second half. But medical marijuana is something personally that is near and dear to my art that I have been fighting for, been an advocate for, probably for seven years now. My father passed away uh, seven years ago last month, and he was my hero. He died after a long battle with esophageal cancer, and the last year or so was absolutely brutal. And he was in so much pain, it had spread to his back and his lungs. And I'll never forget how much pain he was in. And he was on all kind of medication, nothing worked. I and my sisters had pressured him into trying marijuana. Uh, he was not having it. My dad was one of the most conservative people I've ever met. I actually only saw him have a few beers during my life, during his life. Um, About six months before he died, he called me and said that he had gotten some marijuana from a friend of his that was actually at the uh, cancer center as well, and he was going to try it that night. He wanted me to come over and be there with my mom, uh, because my mom was completely freaked out by the whole situation. When I got to my parents' house, my mom had lit candles all throughout the house because she was convinced that the FBI was coming to our house. That's an actual quote. She thought uh, that the FBI was going to smell, I guess, or the neighbors are going to smell the marijuana and call the police and and the FBI would show up. So she was completely freaked out. But my dad, um, who was so desperate at that point, and I can guarantee had never tried marijuana before, was ready to try it. And his friend had rolled him two small joints. I can still see those joints sitting on the coffee table of my parents' house, the house I grew up in, and my dad lit the joint, smoked it, sat back in his chair, and for the first time in probably nine months to a year, he was pain-free and literally had this look of ecstasy on his face. He was so happy and so comfortable, and he just looked at us and said, oh, my God, I don't have any pain. And then he got really high and said, I feel like I'm up here and you're all down there, Uh, to which my mom and I cracked up laughing. And he then proceeded. We had had ordered a pizza. He then proceeded to eat a half a pizza and ice cream and strawberry shortcake, all the things you do. (laughs) Um, Not that I would know, but all the things I hear that you do after you smoke marijuana my dad at that point had lost almost 100 pounds he had no appetite so for him to, to for me to see him eating and for him to feel pain free i realized at that moment that marijuana needed to be legalized uh, for medical purposes i'm certainly uh, behind it being legalized for recreational purposes as well of course but uh, all i cared about at that point was people that had pain there had to be some relief for it and, it, and it was not opioids. That wasn't working. It needed to be natural, and it needed to uh, be the same thing that my father had just tried. So it was a great day a year ago when I found out that the state of Pennsylvania had finally legalized medical marijuana. And hopefully these bozos uh, in Washington, Trump and Sessions, uh, don't change that. I don't think they will. and Trump hopefully won't be along, won't be around long enough to, to do anything of any importance. Um, but that is my short story, maybe a long story uh, behind my support of medical marijuana. So Keith Morgan, who's a good friend and a great guy and somebody that certainly should rec- hopefully receive a license, would do a great job. Uh, he's on the pod uh, today. And that's going to be the first half. Second half, again, is all about AMCO, which his father founded and he became CEO of. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, let's get started. I guess that's it. Um, Enough from me. Here we go. Pleasure be here. So I first wanted to talk to you today about medical marijuana. We can get into the rest of your career a little bit later on in the podcast. But how did you first learn about the passing of this law? I guess the law was passed on April 17th, 2016. So almost a year ago now, uh, Pennsylvania legalized medical marijuana. This then set off, I guess, about a 12 month or 11 month period. They figured out how to implement uh, the law and now we're sitting here today in, in, in April of 2017, and you just applied. So how did you first learn about marijuana? Why did you want to get involved? And how did things look right now in April of 2017 for
1: you? So it was March of 2016. It was actually before the law had been passed and i was watching round one of the ncaa tournament with a high school friend of mine who told me that he had spent about 18 months pursuing medical marijuana and he was very knowledgeable but he was looking for capital and knowing that i was an experienced business person he asked me if i had any ideas on how to structure an investment partnership for medical marijuana so i offered to help research and went down a path where I basically said to him that there'd be one of three scenarios. Either I would decide it's not a worthwhile investment for me, um, or I would invest with him. Or if I was so optimistic about the opportunity that maybe I would seek the opportunity on my own.
0: Where, what state was he applying in? Pennsylvania. Oh, so okay. So he first brought it up. in in March and sixteen.
1: Right, and we're both we were both raised here in Pennsylvania. Went to high school at the Harford School. Uh, actually, the uh, governor of Colorado, who's from Norrbeth, his last name is I think Hickenlooper. Okay, um, it, and oh, Col- John is John, yeah. and he was from Norrbeth. He went to the Harford School and of course Colorado is has recreational marijuana so it, uh, separately my my colleague from high school Ken Smuckler he also applied for licenses so uh it could end up that uh, our small class of 80 students may may have may play a prominent role in medical marijuana <laughs> in the United States
0: so that was March of sixteen. So you then start investigating it on your own.
1: And and fortunately, I I had known State Senator Dalen Leach uh, for about fifteen years, and I knew that he along with uh, State Senator Fulmer had co-sponsored the bill, and it hadn't been passed into law yet. But I reached out to Dalen, had the opportunity to meet with him and his staff at his office in King of Prussia, and then shortly thereafter, the governor came after it was signed. I guess as a thank you to Dalen, he did a um, sort of press conference in Philadelphia and also an informal roundtable of people who had a vested interest in medical marijuana. There were about 40 people there, and the vast majority of them were either industry uh, professionals or Uh, needy patients. So there were a lot of passionate stories told about pediatric epilepsy, people with cancer or chronic pain. And actually at that time, uh, other than myself, there were only two other uh, entrepreneurs there that were representative of potentially uh, the players of, of the industry.
0: Did you have any idea at that point the size of the industry or what it could become in Pennsylvania and how much that would be worth?
1: Uh, Well, my, my friend and colleague, Ken, was partnering with a gentleman who has a license in Illinois. And they were, a lot of people were talking about the similarities between Illinois and Maryland with Pennsylvania, just because of the population size of the states and the nature or specifics of the medical marijuana law. And so at that time, the projection was that in five to seven years, Pennsylvania could be about a billion-dollar industry for medical marijuana? Wow. I think I just saw that Colorado, which of course is recreational, is running about a billion dollars.
0: All right. So you set off on a path to investigating this, learning all about the industry. Now, obviously, you've never grown uh, marijuana, uh, you know, as as a processor or had a hundred thousand square foot facility in, in your career. So you start assembling a team, I would imagine.
1: Yes. And the way I looked at it is, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Uh, my father had started Amco in 1963 when I was two years old. I like to say that I grew up in the business. I worked there summers and worked in shops in different departments and then eventually served as CEO of the company for 15 years. Um, but my father was the consummate entrepreneur. He started or bought dozens of businesses. And I just have a lot of passion for uh, starting or running or growing businesses. The key here was I felt, and a lot of people approached me about medical marijuana in other states, and I really had no interest, I, I, and I, I still don't. I, I, I'm very passionate about being a Pennsylvania citizen. I've lived here all my life, and I felt that if I had an opportunity to get it in the ground floor of this industry, that that would be something that made a lot of sense. Um, but clearly the state of Pennsylvania wants to have a very successful program, and they're looking for partners, licensees who can demonstrate a multitude of factors and one of the most important ones is the ability to successfully fulfill the program. So I needed to find a partner who would you know, be very qualified to run the business.
0: Okay, so that was I guess 12 months ago. You assemble your team. You start getting everyone together and now we're here in April of 17 and I believe you just submitted your application.
1: I did on March 20th was the deadline. I submitted for two grow licenses and five dispensary licenses. How many
0: growing facilities? Sorry to interrupt. How many growing facilities will there will there be in Pennsylvania?
1: So the state was divided into six regions. Pennsylvania is almost roughly a perfect rectangle, so they divide it into six pieces, um, and each region is going to have two grow facilities. A grow facility can sell to any dispensary. There will be 27 dispensary licenses. The dispensary licenses come with the right to open three locations. If you win a dispensary license, you have to open in three separate counties. So there's 27 primary counties in the state of Pennsylvania. Of I think there's around 60, or maybe 63 counties. Um, but because the 27 can open... In, in multiple counties, the state will be you know pretty much covered. The dispensary licenses are very much concentrated based on population density, whereas the grow licenses aren't necessarily.
0: The grow licenses, you said there was 12? 12. 12 two to, per, two region. per region. And there's no overlap between operators? There all have to be 12 separate operators? Correct. Be, okay. there's,
1: it's prohibited to have an ownership interest in more than one location as a grow.
0: All right. So there's, there's going to be 12 awarded. How many applicants do you think there are?
1: Well, you know, the estimates based on Illinois and Maryland and the expectations of Pennsylvania was going to be somewhere between 500 and 900. That's a pretty broad range, but um, and that would be grow and dispensary, and it definitely varies by region. So if we talk about, and also, you know, grow versus dispensary, if you look at just the grow applications alone, there may be 100 to 150. Um, because the financial requirements are higher, the the real estate requirements, et cetera. So I think there'll be about 100 to 150 applicants for GROW. In the southeast region, which is, of course, Philadelphia, Montgomery, Bucks County, et cetera, the expectation is there's probably about 20 to 25 applicants for two GROW licenses, which is pretty pretty competitive, uh, especially you know, you're talking about a 1 in 10 chance of winning a license, and the average applicant for a grow license could realistic well first of all the the application license fee is $200,000 the application fee is 10,000 so you have to have you have to submit 210,000 in a certified check to the state of Pennsylvania but just the uh additional expenses that one would incur in preparation for the application, securing real estate, a team, et cetera, could easily be a few hundred thousand dollars. So, you know, it's it's a gamble for an individual to gamble a couple hundred thousand dollars when they only have at best a a one in 10 chance of winning the license.
0: All right. So now let's say they have 150, 150 applications. Who goes through these applications and what is the criteria on how they'll
1: choose somebody? So I really think I I definitely have to hand it to the state of Pennsylvania. I think that they've done an excellent job in trying to and actually pursuing a very objective scoring system. So it's a thousand point scale and it's broken out into a variety of categories such as community impact, uh, capital adequacy, business experience, diversity. And so each individual category you can earn 100 to 150 points. So on a 1,000-point scale, the top applicants are going to be in the 800 to 900 range. It's possible nobody gets a 900, Mm -hmm. but I would think that the winning applicants are going to be north of 800. And in order to achieve that, while uh, certain applicants are going to be very strong in one specific area, they're going to max out. So they can only get 100 points on community impact. So in order to get an 800 or 900, you, for the most part, have to score very well in just about every category and then so they're going to get all the applicants they're going to do the scoring Um, actually one my understanding is one group does the scoring and a separate group then evaluates them Uh, it then gets broken out within region so for example if it turns out that the number one two and three grow applicants are all in the southeast region unfortunately the group that's ranked number three in the state won't get a license, whereas in another region, say possibly the Northwest, someone could be ranked 45th in the state and the second applicant 80th in the state, but they're the number one and two in the Northwest, so they'll win. So but it is intended to be a very quantitative and very objective. There are a lot of stories in other states about lawsuits or potential lawsuits and politics uh, taking into account the the winning Um, licensees. And and Pennsylvania, I think, has been very, very serious about no pay to play here. It's strictly based on merit.
0: And it seems to me they've had a very deliberate process after the passing of the law going through. They brought a lot of people in. I I know there was a conference back in June where they had a lot of people's roundtables and trying to figure out the right way to implement this law.
1: So they definitely were uh, very interested in getting feedback from both the industry and from citizens. So even um, you know, during a variety of steps in the process, there was opportunities to submit uh, in writing and also in public forums feedback to the government. And I think that they were, you know, Pennsylvania is very serious about this being a medical marijuana state. There's 17 different ailments. It's a non-smoking state. It's a non-edible state. Um, and they're very serious about it being legitimately intending to help people who are suffering from a variety of diseases and chronic ailments and help bring them comfort. Most of these ailments, people either you know live with chronic pain or suffering, and they've exhausted the traditional medical treatments that either come with serious consequences like opioid addiction. Uh, or overdose, um, or other side effects and complications. Um, there are documented cases of pediatric epilepsy where children have literally dozens and dozens of seizures a day that have gone down to zero through the use of medical marijuana. So the state has taken into account substantial feedback from patients, doctors, industry professionals uh, and entrepreneurs that has helped shape the program.
0: I was going to say, I think there's a lot of research about opioid addiction and how when marijuana was legalized in certain states, how the opioid use went down, right? And it actually saved lives.
1: Right. So there's a landmark study, and it was the first six states with medical marijuana, and it was documented that opioid overdose deaths were reduced by 25% in those six states. Now, I think it's likely someone will do a follow-up study because now you have 25 or 28 states with medical marijuana. Um, it, would be very, it would be very interesting to see, um, but I do believe that it is a valid statistic that, uh, y- you know, industry people like to say that no one's ever died from a marijuana overdose. Right. Um, in addition, a lot of the relief that one gets from medical marijuana is from the CBDs, not the THC, so it doesn't really have the intoxicating effect. And it can, you know, and especially when it's in in, uh, oils or lotions or ointments, et cetera, um, can definitely uh, bring pain relief without having the side effects or feeling of being high.
0: You had mentioned that it's a non edible and non smoking state. So, how, how do you take the marijuana when it's legal?
1: So it's you it's pills, ointments, lotions. It's also vapor vaping, which is becoming quite popular, is is permissible.
0: So the lotion, is that does that go on the area that you're in pain or just you rub it on and it helps you with the right, your whole body?
1: Right. No, typically you put it in the area where you have pain.
0: Got it, okay. Um, jumping back quickly to you mentioned dispensaries. So the dispensaries are the point of sale where the patients actually receive the marijuana? Correct. The that. Pay- I guess, why do they have these special dispensaries versus all the other pharmaceutical drugs that would be sold at Walgreens, CVS, other traditional pharmacies? Why is there a special place just for marijuana?
1: Well, it's a good question. I think that Pennsylvania is following the model from other states, and they believe that the safest and most effective system is to have a specialized, unique proprietary distribution system. And it does ensure you know, that issues of theft or un, you know inappropriate access to medical marijuana is minimized if not completely eliminated. So there actually aren't prescriptions for medical marijuana like you would get a prescription for any other drug you you get a you get you get licensed as a patient with an identification card that makes you eligible and then there are specific doctors that are authorized to, issue a prescription for it, and then you, once you're into the system, then you can go into the dispenser with your card.
0: Let's move on. So you, you applied, and now when do we find out who is awarded a
1: license? So the state, was interesting how the program evolved because it, it did take them a long time to issue the final regulations and applications, and they were posted on January 17th with a March 20th deadline, and that, that was really short. I mean, that was less than 60 days, but most of the people who were actively planning on submitting an application had been working on it for months and were pretty much prepared. The state says that the Department of Health will rule by June 20th. They just mentioned on Friday uh, that they will definitely provide the answers by the end of June. So you're talking about a 90-day period.
0: Okay. And, and there will be an announcement of the twelve growers by that. And time. the
1: dispensaries, the dispensaries. I, and, and, and it's expected to be operational. Yeah. In six to nine months, so you're looking at pretty much the first quarter or early second quarter 2018.
0: That's fantastic. And and I won't go into all the 17 different ailments that this will, that medical marijuana will cover, but you know, some of the more some of the more known ones are cancer, ALS, HIV, Crohn's disease. Um, autism. So I think this is really obviously going to change things in the state of Pennsylvania. So I wish you, I wish you good luck, Keith. Let's take a quick break right there. So I can talk to you about our newest sponsor run Avalon Avalon RunAvalon.com is a brand new running and fitness apparel brand that launches on May 26th, the Friday before Memorial day weekend based in Avalon, New Jersey, down the shore. However, you can only get their apparel online at www.runavalon.com. They have captured the spirit of those who relish in kicking up before kicking back at the beach. You should check out their materials, their gear. We just got them in here at the studio. I was trying on some of the running shorts, the shirts, the hats. Great selection for both male and female, some of their female tank tops. Um, really cool. My wife uh, was trying them on earlier. Um, Definitely check them out. If you're into yoga, if you're into running, if you're into working out, go to runavalon.com. And just jumping back, because you kind of dropped it in there at the beginning of the interview, Uh, your father started Amco Transmissions.
1: Yes, the franchisor. Very similar to the Ray Kroc, McDonald Brothers story, where There was one Amco in Philadelphia owned by Tony Martino, and my father approached him with the vision of building a national franchise chain of transmission specialists. Did did your dad
0: at the time, sorry to interrupt, did your dad at the time have another franchise?
1: So he had experience in franchising. He had the second largest chain of franchise dance studios in the United States, Robert Morgan Dance Studios after Arthur Murray. Unfortunately, that was very vibrant in the mid-50s, but by the late 50s, when uh, Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show and rock and roll became very popular, the ballroom dancing was no longer cool. Okay. So that business uh, experienced a st- steep decline. He then got involved in automotive aftermarket. He had a chain of b- franchise brake shops called Safeway Brakes. And that business for, I'm not sure why, because it was before I was born, but didn't do well. But he discovered a failed Safeway brake shop one day was packed with cars. And he said to himself, if that location didn't work for a brake shop, uh, why is it doing so well? And it turned out to be an automatic transmission repair store. And automatic transmissions were just starting to become more and more prevalent on new cars that were being made by Ford and General Motors and Chrysler in the early 60s. And unfortunately... Uh, people in the aftermarket and even in the dealerships didn 't have the expertise to fix transmissions and you might might not realize this, but back in the early sixties cars came with a twelve month twelve thousand mile warranty <laughs> Wow, and that was There's it no kidding so as soon as your car was over a year old and twelve thousand miles, you were in the aftermarket and either whether you went to the dealership or not, you paid for it, so it really created a a booming opportunity for anyone who knew how to fix an automatic transmission in fact. When Amco had 25 stores, we were the world's largest chain and transmission specialist.
0: Wow. So this Safeway Breaks, this, this closed Safeway Breaks, was now being operated by Tony Martino as a transmission. Actually,
1: it, for, the, for those who grew up in Philadelphia, it was on Cotman Avenue. It was actually a Cotman transmission. Oh, wow. And, um, and that's how that chain got its name. And uh, Amco was, was in a different part of the city. Ironically, Cotman grew to about 450 locations, Amco at its peak had over 900, and when my family sold Amco in 2006, we actually sold to Cotman. There was an example of the number two player buying the number one player for the, for the number one player's brand name, and they converted uh, the Cotmans to Amcos. and also, by that time, we had diversified into complete auto repair, like Midas and Meineke and Goodyear Firestone. So Those
0: transmissions these days don't go like they used to.
1: The right? failure rate is down tremendously from 30 years ago. Right.
0: Uh, so Tony Martino. So was it sort of a, a combination of Tony Martino, the mechanic, and your father, the businessman, coming together? and rolling out this franchise. Is that how, the, how it
1: worked, the relationship? Exactly, okay. right. Tony had the technical expertise for transmission repairs and he focused on the back of the shop, training franchisees on how to fix cars. And my father was the consummate marketing executive and developed all kinds of advertising and marketing and sales programs to try to grow the business.
0: Yeah, and I want to ask you about them because there's obviously a famous, uh, famous jingle. Jumping back one more time to the '60s, so I, re- I remember hearing a story about them opening maybe 400 or 500 stores in a very short period of time in the '60s.
1: Right. Well, they did open about 500 stores in four or five years. I, I have copies of the advertisements uh, that uh, they used to run in in the Wall Street Journal and all kinds of newspapers. So there used to be, before the internet age, of course, the business opportunity section of a newspaper, which would be packed with advertisements, and the ad would say something like, how would you like to make a $100,000 a year, and for a $25,000 investment. Okay. So, and I, I did hear all kinds of stories from Amco franchisees when, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s and running the business, how literally on... A Saturday afternoon, when you would close up the shop, the owner would come home with a, a wad of $3,500 cash um, in his pocket um, from work. And so, of course, that's $150,000 a year. Yeah, And, you know, the vast majority was cash, and there wasn't as much credit cards. And it was a very, very profitable business. Um, you know, there were high margins in transmission repair, and there wasn't a lot of competition. So it was easy to sell new stores when franchisees were making a lot of money.
0: If we can get a little specific here, because I'm, I'm fascinated by the franchise model. So when he's selling them for, I guess, $25,000, a mechanic somewhere in Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska, as an example, he cobbles together $25,000, gives it to your father. Your father then, does he build him a store? Like, how does that work?
1: So, you know, the, the franchising model is pretty much represents a complete turnkey operating system. We would advertise no mechanical or technical automotive experience necessary so we actually did not recruit or market for mechanics oh, okay. we focused on people with business experience a lot of them were were middle managers or a small shop retail owners sold their business people from all walks of life some accountants uh, or even attorneys that wanted a career change they wanted to be their own boss and that's you know the industry promotes the idea that you're going to have Financial freedom and freedom to be your own boss Uh, a lot of franchises unfortunately don't work out as as one Had hoped when they made their original investment, but the expectation is that you're going to get a complete turnkey system and the training uh, That would include uh, site selection how to hire and train employees how to advertise and market Um, I I always say the single most important thing that you want in selecting a franchise is a brand name or banner that's gonna bring customers in the door. So the day you put up that sign, whether it's McDonald's, Wendy's, Amco, Midas, et cetera, the expectation is that people are gonna be in that community, are gonna see that brand, and it's gonna be associated with quality and quality service, et cetera, and they're gonna come in. Back in those days, the single biggest source of customer traffic was the Yellow Pages.
0: Okay. Oh, an Amco with DAs, right? That's
1: right. So my father, the reason why it was double A was so that we were always listed first you know, oh, well. in the phone book. Okay. That's also why it's always capitalized.
0: So once this, this franchise is sold, and does this franchisee then have to pay back a percentage of their profit? Do you have to worry about that? See, well, I'm curious, like, how well, do you know if he's being honest?
1: So profit is an interesting word. The cornerstone <laughs> of franchising is actually royalties. And royalties have nothing to do with profits. So the beauty of being a franchisor is drive the sales of the franchisee chain, and your royalties will go up. Uh, but of course, if the franchisee is not profitable, they're not going to be happy. They're not going to be able to. They're not going to open more stores of their own. And one thing that we focus very heavily on is what we call a franchisee validation. So if a prospective franchisee comes along and wants to know, is this a good investment? They would talk to the existing franchisees. And when the chain does well and they're happy in making money, it's much easier to sell stores because prospective franchisees talk to existing franchisees. Franchise chains that are a more challenging environment, it's very hard to grow because the existing franchisees aren't that happy. Mm -hmm. But it is the franchising model has a lot of pros and cons, but it's the classic story of OPM, other people's money. Sure. So the franchisees putting up all the capital and taking all the risk, and the franchisor is basically getting a royalty.
0: So you were a young kid when your dad was growing that business. I guess it was it was building as you were growing up. Um, the the famous jingle double A beep beep M C O. When did that come into play? Do you remember that?
1: Well, I remember that, um, yeah, and it was in the mid '60s, and my father was actually quite a pioneer in advertising. He was one of the first, if not the first, um, national brands to hire celebrity spokespeople, both athletes and actors or actresses. So he had Johnny Unitas, who you know won the Super Bowl with the Colts. Well, I don't know, if it, yeah, I think it was the Super Bowl. He had Wilt Chamberlain. Um, he had Leo DeRozier and Roger Maris and a variety of athletes and they made very little money back then as athletes and they also made very little money as a, as an endorsement. He also had Zsa Gabor who recently passed away at, at the age of 99. Um, and she was our spokesperson and my father shot the first commercial in the upper Derby Amco center on a Rolls Royce. And in that commercial, which you can actually see on YouTube in black and white, she would say at the end, um, she had a Hungarian accent. And she kept butchering every word, but people thought <laughs> that was cute. Um, so she said, my translation goes ping and at the very end, there's the Amco man, and she makes this joke, the classic dry humor of, someday I'll make a commercial for you. And she also says, um, the Amco man says, you know, or she says, tell him Zsa Zsa sends you. And literally thousands and thousands of people across the country would come into Amco shops and say, Zsa sent me. Oh, wow! It was an unbelievable, I mean, if you talk about a classic advertising marketing study, um, as how this, this type of a program evolved. Now it's very commonplace today. So my father believed in the power of television. Um, there's a number of, there's actually a series on CNN about television in America, and it goes through the 60s and the 70s and 80s. I've seen it. Yeah. And so, you know, television is, is what made AMCO a successful business. And my father required the franchisees to spend around $400 a week. In television advertising with 500 franchisees, and the total annual spend in the mid 60s was about $10 million. If you look at the cost of inflation for electronic advertising, that's the equivalent of well over 100, if not closer to $200 million today, which you're putting yourself up there with like Anheuser-Busch and General Motors. I mean, the best, you know, you see some major. Uh, Now, of course, the world has changed with the Internet and different forms of advertising. But um, so the brand has about a 92 percent brand awareness as a result of, you know, 20 plus 30 years of significant television advertising.
0: So were you ha- hiring advertising firms out in New York? I mean, were you in like the Mad Men era of going up there and meeting these guys in their offices and that sort of thing?
1: Exactly. Although I personally wasn't that involved because I was too young, but that yeah. that was definitely. That's a good example.
0: And one of these firms is the one that came up with the double MCO?
1: Well, yeah, that's the, the funny thing is if you ask my father, he came up with every idea. He, oh, took, okay. he took credit for everything, but um, there was. Uh, a stretch in the 70s when we used to win, I think three years in a row, we won the Clio Award for Best Commercial for Retail. Um, and there was a guy named Joe Seidelmeyer who also did the Federal Express commercials and the Wendy's Where's the Beef commercials. And I don't remember the Federal Express commercials was, you know, uh, the guy was very, very fast talking. And so the Anco commercials had a similar look and feel. And that was an era of the beginning of television commercials becoming entertainment. Okay. Prior to that, so this is the mid '70s, mid to late '70s. Prior to that, they were very uh, information oriented, uh, trying to educate you on a product or a service, and then people recognized that let's make if it's entertaining, and people are more likely to watch it. Um, there were others who challenged whether or not you legitimately got the message across. But, of course, you probably mer- remember what Clara Peller or whatever her name was, you know, saying, where's the beef? And yeah, yeah, yeah. those kinds of commercials. So Amco went through a stretch like that as well.
0: When uh, you were mentioning about people walking in saying, Jaja sent me, how did you know or how did your father know that this jingle the AA, Beep, Beep, MCO was successful. I mean, how, how do you realize that, do you start hearing your friends saying it all the time, or how does it...
1: Well, I, I think actually we started doing, we were big believers in market research, and that would, uh, we would spend a lot of money, at times $100,000 a year, which, you are know, talking 20 plus years ago was a fairly significant sum, and you would seek out people who had a transmission repair or service within the last 12 months and you would break it down. Did they go to an automotive repair facility? Did they go to, um, a car dealership? Did they go to a transmission specialist? And of course the other requirement was there was out of warranty. Okay. Because if it's in warranty, we don't really have a shot at it. Um, and we would understand, you know, what, were the most important attributes. In the early days, AMCO offered a lifetime warranty. We were probably the first company to offer a lifetime warranty on any repair service. That's interesting. And my father loved the fact that, um, you know, we could charge a premium price. My father was also a huge believer in, in the sales process with the alternative clothes. So we would never ask a customer a question that will result in a yes or no answer. It would always be a choice of two yeses. Would you, you can you know, give me an example of that? Yeah, an example would be um, we, can, we can fix your transmission, and it comes with a complete recondition for 12 months, 12,000 12, miles, or a lifetime warranty built to the highest standards in the industry, um, and the one is 300 the lifetime is only $375. Which would you prefer? You know, it's, it's always it's the classic. It's, it's also, he was a big believer in the assumptive close. So you assume that the prospect is going to be saying yes. So you don't ask them, would you like this, do you want this, do you want to buy that's the it's it's almost intended that by giving an alternative close, it's also an assumptive close. You're assuming they're buying, and you're giving a choice of A or B. Right.
0: It's almost like hearing somebody right. say, "When do, when do you want us to get started?"
1: Right. Not asking you. And and because we're on a podcast, you know, we don't have the visual. But one of the classic yeah. things at Amco is that the we would train our sales managers at the very end of the presentation when we would ask the customer the choice of A or B, they would literally stand up and hand the pen to the customer. <laughs> wow. Well, and so okay. that, yes, and literally your, your, your body language and handing the pen and you'd hand them the clipboard with the repair order and you would point to A or B and they would either initial to for the 12 month or the lifetime. Oh, wow. um, and also you may understand from a from a pricing perspective 12 months versus a lifetime, I mean, it's pretty easy to upsell to a lifetime. We're sure. we not offering a 36-month or a 60-month. We're, we're going from a basic bare bones to a premium.
0: Um, at some point, your dad and his partner split up, and then he, your, his partner opened Mako.
1: Right, Tony Martino.
0: Which is the collision repair shop. Right. And were you guys at the time upset that he named it? So close to Amco. Well, you know, to... it's an
1: interesting story. Tony said that Amco was was named was named after Anthony A. Martino and Company. And my father' oh, his all- initials, correct? Okay. And Tony was very successful to his credit. He was very very successful with Mako. Um, he was he had struggled for a number of years, and at first um, Mako didn't take off that successfully. But the beauty of what Tony did. At MAKO was he learned from all the mistakes that we had made at AMCO um, so that, for example, Tony owned the phone number. So he had much more control over the franchisee. He had put in a lot of controls and checks and balances. Um, when AMCO was growing, we were, we were opening dozens of stores a quarter. We didn't have, we were more interested in just getting them open and getting their money and opening, and we didn't focus on all the controls and checks and balances. So Tony had a lot more protection. Tony also was an elective service. He was doing body paint, and, and he wasn't really doing collision that was covered by insurance. He was dealing with the market where you have a lot of scratches and dents and things and things that didn't interfere with the operation of the vehicle. Okay. So it was purely cosmetic and it was, it was a smaller industry. It was over a billion dollars, but he called them cosmetologists or something. He created some word. But because it was an elective, it enabled the consumer to drive out with a better-looking car that was fresh and new and, and get some and satisfaction. You could, see. you could see it, whereas in the transmission industry, it's a negative sell. You're driving your car, you have an unexpected repair, your car might break down, it's expensive, and when you're done you spend all that money, your car is the same old car that it was. So he had a number of advantages, but he was very successful. Um, He passed away in 2007, and, and NACO was sold, and I actually pursued... Uh, the opportunity to buy the company, which I was an underbidder, and it actually closed, I believe, in late September, early October of 2008, which was right after the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the beginning of the highly distressed financial markets. Um, New new ownership did very well with Mako, and the company was sold again very successfully. But I got to know Mark Martino, Tony's firstborn son, uh well who was the president of the company for a number of years and he did confirm for me that his father's name wasn't is a n it wasn't Anthony A. Martino was not his actual name. Oh come on. <laughs> and I actually was going to get a copy of his death certificate, <laughs> which I believe is a matter of public record, just to prove that the company wasn't named after him. Prove to who? Proved myself. The, I mean, has it always been
0: a mystery within? Well, the you know,
1: Tony was heralded as, as quite an entrepreneur, and he was very successful with Mako. He, but you know, ninety percent of the success of Amco was from my father, Robert Morgan. But you know, Tony took credit because he had the original Amco, and the company was named after him. So it was sort of an ego pride issue on my part.
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, when you took over as CEO, was that I, I assume your father couldn't totally take himself out of the business, right? Was there ever any like, hey, I think you should be doing this and this way? And you were saying, well, I think we should be doing this way.
1: Well, yes. And I, there are a lot of family owned businesses in America, a lot of private family owned businesses, and not all the family members are involved in it. My father would love to talk at the dinner table about business, which I strongly discouraged because I felt that it wasn't fair to my mother and my brothers. Um, but he, as a young child and as a teenager, I loved to talk to him about business. And I felt that I was a sponge and idolized him and learned a lot. Learned a lot from his mistakes as well. I
0: wish you the best of luck. I really appreciate your time today. I, I, I find medical marijuana and, and the whole industry fascinating. As I mentioned to you, my own personal story. I, I hope you become uh, a grower and processor and seller in the state. Uh, and I know uh, the medical marijuana will be in good hands. And I appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Okay, that wraps up our second podcast. Thank you, Keith Morgan. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, Run Avalon. RunAvalon.com. Thank you very much. Go check them out, guys. Again, if you like the pod, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And also follow us on Twitter, at Broad and Walnut. Broad, A-N-D, Walnut. Thank you so much. Please keep listening. We will be back next week with an all-new pod I think it's going to be really great. We just recorded it, and uh, it's something special. So check us out next Friday on Broad and Walnut, and that's it. Have a great week.